IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about potential album of the year candidates and discuss the legacy of The Cure. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's excited to see Ani DeFranco and Insane Clown Posse at Riot Fest. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Not as excited as I am to see Alien Ant Farm and R.A. the Rugged Man at the Gathering of the Juggalos, which was announced a couple days ago. Man, that Riot Fest really stole its thunder, didn't it? Yeah, so... This was announced this week, the lineup for Riot Fest, which if you don't know, traditionally a punk festival that takes place in Chicago, uh, although now it's sort of like just an all-purpose rock festival with like other things thrown in. And you can really see it in the lineup poster that they unveiled this week. And look, if you listen to this show, you know that we have a weakness here for chaotic festival lineups which is why we love things like the beale street festival in memphis and shaky knees that's not actually too chaotic that's kind of chaotic nah. at times. but just like these local festivals like where you can see snoop dogg and then the gin blossoms and then like 311 and then uh you know uh huey lewis in the news you know like where they're just throwing everything at the wall and you can see this happened at Riot Fest, and it's cool because typically, like these big festivals, the Coachellas and uh, you know the Bonnaroos, it feels like the same people play these festivals every year. Riot Fest, though, uh, it's really getting chaotic here. Looking at the poster at the top, pretty normal. You got Foo Fighters and Turnstile on Friday, Postal Service, Death Cab for Cutie, Queens of the Stone Age on Saturday, Sunday, The Cure. And the Mars Volta, which I think we're all we're on board for all those. Yeah, absolutely. Headliners, right? Ben Gibber getting yeah. big time money. Not so much as Walter Schreifels, who's playing in three different bands on this festival. So, well, yeah. I mean, once you get in, like the the lines beyond the headliners, it's it's just beautiful. So, like the the like the the first line below the headliners, you have Mr. Bungle, <laughs> Tiga, Tegan, and Sarah. 100 Gex, The Gaslight Anthem, and AFI. Mr. Bungle listed first. Yeah. I I I didn't know they pulled that much. I mean, like, these are people for whom, like, the Mars Volta is a little too poppy and cute. You know, like, they gotta, they, they gotta, they gotta give something for those guys. Yeah, like, the Mr. Bungle crowd, it will be a fascinating uh, thing to behold for those who are there. By the way, are we are we going to angle for some sort of like indie cast presence? Yeah, at what, this festival, whatever favors or goodwills we can cash in to do this live. I, I think if it's not this, what what are we even here for? Like people need us to, you know, remember because there is definitely some rem- there are definitely some guys to remember on this festival poster. I mean. We have uh, cults. I didn't expect them to be on there. Shout out to them. Balancing composure. Uh, Oso Oso is on there. They're not guys to remember, but um, I just love the fact that this this festival was able to put together like a rock a rock lineup without doing like the Rocklahoma thing, where it's you know you get like Deftones and Tool and like 
all the worst ripoffs of Five Finger Death Punch you can imagine. Or it's not a festival that just thinks that, like, the Linda Lindas and Meet Me at the Altar are the only new rock bands in existence. It walks like a really awesome tightrope here. And again, the chaotic energy is amazing. I want to get to the fifth line here. This is my favorite line of the poster. This is where we have Ani DeFranco, Finch, Silverstein. Do you know? Do you know? Have you heard a Finch or Silverstein band song before? Uh is it Shell Silverstein? I've heard. I've heard Shell Silverstein is, songs. I think it's like a Canadian kind of metalcore band. Right. Yeah. Like Real House of have... Blues, like bamboozle type <laughs> energy going on there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Insane Clown Posse, Head Automatica. Apparently that's a big deal for people. Like, they're Daryl Palumbo's post-Glassjaw band. (laughs) Like, I mean, you want to talk, like, the energy of, like, the Mr. Bungle crowd? Like, Glassjaw fans have definitely their own kind of energy. Um, They're, like, one of those bands that... You know, to quote the great Beavis and Butthead line about uh, Jesus lizards, like, they suck, but they rule. Yeah. I just love that band name because I feel like <laughs> you you know what that band is. Yeah, like Minus the Bear. Name. Kind of a similar sort of, uh, similar sort of joke going on. And then the line below that one, there's two bands, <laughs> Parliament Funkadelic and Godspeed You Black Emperor. Uh, Godspeed on, on the sixth line. That seems a little low to me. And like well below, I didn't even read the line where we have the interrupters flogging Molly, oh, Frank God. Turner. I know it smelled crazy in there. <laughs> Pennywise. Oh, Damn. look at that. A little bro him. I, I think Pennywise, ha- like they are wards of the Riot Fest state. They're never not going to be on it. One thing, yeah. The, the one thing that interested me most of all is that the Black Angels are like way, on the same line as like origami angel like if you go to austin psych fest which is a very big festival like black angels are a top line band yeah i feel like that's texas though Uh, i feel like that's i think in that specific context they would be big but like at a riot fest i don't know like outside of the psych fest world yeah um there's like a milwaukee psych fest that's pretty big (laughs) i wonder if black angels are playing at that one i mean they're kings of the psych Fest circuit. Yeah. Um, I reviewed a Black Angels album for Pitchfork <laughs> once. <laughs> See, uh, this is why we I, need to be at Riot Fest. Yeah, I didn't I didn't give it a very good review. Yeah. They don't seem um, like an album band to me. Well, you like you you think of them as like a live band? I just think of them as like kind of you stand around at Psych Fest and see them. Like, I mean, they're 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 not quite the tunesmiths of like the, if you like you want to see Brian Jonestown, uh Brian Jonestown Massacre, but you're not into like the songs or melodies, so so to speak, you can probably fuck around with the Black Angels. If we've got any Psych uh, Fest fans out there, I'm gonna do a shout out to the Warlocks. <laughs> I I'm a fan of the Warlocks. I'm remembering some Psych Fest guys. <laughs> I unironically really like the Warlocks. They've got some albums that I enjoy. They're like one of my favorite bands of that. See, I've got some Psych Fest DNA in me for sure. <laughs> I mean, I lived in Milwaukee for eight years. So in that town, and I suspect it's probably still the same, big psych fest, big garage rock, mm-hmm. those things. And of course, metal is always big in Milwaukee. You know, it's a Rust Belt town. So, you know, music that you can drink PBR to is always going to be big in Milwaukee. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Riot Fest, if you're listening, you know, let's set up a tent. 
for IndieCast. Let's broadcast from the grounds. We can do in-depth recaps. I definitely want to check out the Ani DeFranco, Silverstein, Insane Clown Posse <laughs> trifecta. I think that'll be amazing. Um, we got to mention Dresden Dolls and say anything. The fact that they're that high uh, up, they are like a... They're like the two real genders type band, like the most annoying theater kids you can possibly imagine in 2003 were into one of those two bands. And now here we are 20 years later. Uh, do you go deep at all with Ani? I don't think so. Uh, I vaguely, I just vaguely recall her existing throughout the 90s. And I'm sure there's like, you know, good music there. But she for so long, she was like kind of an avatar of a certain... Uh, type of like type of per like you know if we want to talk like type of guy typecasting that was definitely a thing in the 90s um i would i think it would be pretty revelatory if i were to like go back and listen to her albums because she was just someone yeah. you could be aware of without having kind of hear her stuff i kind of want to do an ani defranco uh deep dive here because I, I you know we have a question in our mailbag hopefully we'll get to this letter i guess we have to now because i'm previewing it <laughs> mm-hmm. about artists that you get into because of a relationship that you're in, like mm. you're dating someone who really likes an artist. And I, I dated at least one woman who loved Ani DeFranco. I feel like if you were dating in the 90s, yeah, you have at least one ex who was really into Ani DeFranco. Uh, and that was probably like the most exposure I had to her music. But she's an interesting artist because you know, she's like a true independent artist. She had her own record label. And she was... Um, in her own lane, I feel like in the nineties, mm-hmm. even with all the other female singer songwriters of the era, like I don't know, I, I I think of her as being separate from like the Jewels and oh yeah, Sarah McLachlan's and edgier, uh, yeah, kind of, you know, she never kind of went pop. I, I you know, she kind of had, but you know, she's not making abrasive music. It's like folk music, but I don't know, she never had like a big hit. And she was kind of always doing her own thing. Interesting artist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm curious where, how she's going to fit in at Riot Fest. Like, what, what is, is there like a crossover with punk and Ani DeFranco? Oh, absolutely. Is, is, like, is there? Okay. Yeah. I would imagine, like, if you're talking about like folk punk, like the sort of people who are going to be, I don't know, super. I feel like the, Gaslight Anthem, okay, like, let's be fair, like, you know, Gaslight Anthem doesn't sound like folk punk at all, but I I get the feeling that if you were into, like, I don't know, Defiance Ohio, or this kind of Riot Fest 2004 stuff, that kind of is the midpoint between, say, uh, Against Me and, uh, you know, Ani DeFranco. Yeah, I was going to say Against Me, Ani DeFranco, there's some... Similar energies. There's some shared uh, DNA there. Um, I want to talk to you about where we're at right now with like the album of the year discussion in 2023, because we're a couple of weeks away from the midpoint of the year. And as we all know, it is now codified that every, pol- every pu- publication website does like a mid-year list, you know, like, cause people need to get on like the list action more than once. You can't just have it at the end of the year. You need one in the middle of the year. I'm going to be doing one myself. I'm sure we'll talk about it on this show, like our favorite albums of the year. Mm-hmm. But that's a separate conversation. That's like personal favorites, albums that we love. I'm thinking more like the prognostication of the consensus albums of the year. 
what they're going to be. And you can tell already what's going to be in the conversation. The the obvious thing is to go to Metacritic, look at the best-reviewed albums. The best-reviewed new album so far this year is the Caroline Polachek album, which has a 94 Metacritic score. That's incredible like that, that's 100 there. is the top that's yeah, like that's that's like a that, that, those are like the like the pop punk out or metal core albums that get reviewed by like three places but this is like actually like a you know a well-known album <laughs> yeah so there's a that seems like the obvious choice so far you have the uh boy genius album right behind it which has a 90 metacritic score which you know we talked about this when that album came out but that's higher than any album that the individual boy geniuses have put out on their own, other than uh, uh, Punisher, the Phoebe Bridgers album. That also has a 90. So that is going to be in the conversation. I think 100 Gex, that album is like a dark horse maybe here. That album has grown on me, I know, since it's come out. I was a little unsure about it when it dropped, but I've been going back to it, and it's it's really fun, especially as we're entering summertime. Um you know, I wonder like if the SZA album uh, is going to be grandfathered into this conversation because it came out at the end of 2022 in December. I wonder if people are going to find an excuse to get that in. Um, and there's other albums that are on the horizon that I think are going to be in the conversation here, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to tell you if I'm, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here. My impression so far of like the big ticket album of the year candidate type records is that it's kind of a weak year, especially compared to last year, which I thought was like a pretty strong year. Like already we had like a lot of really meaty acclaimed albums that uh, were fun to talk about. This year seems a little slow in comparison to me. And, you know, it, it just got me thinking, you know, we talk all the time on the show about 2013 being this like transitional year. And by the way, at some point, we need to do like a favorite albums of 2013 episode because mm-hmm. I feel like there's 10 year anniversaries left and right right now for like classic records from that year. But um, like when I look at the critically acclaimed music that's come out so far this year, it really feels like iterations or reiterations of like critically acclaimed music from the last five or six years. You know, like the Boy Genius record, for instance feels like a culmination of like this wave of young female singer songwriters that have like really become the center of indie music since like the late 2010s. The Caroline Polachek record feels like a culmination of like the sort of indie spin on mainstream pop music, which has also been like a really kind of critical favorite type music in the last five or six years. And I, I, I'm just wondering, like, are we on the verge of hearing something that changes this paradigm? Because it, it feels like a very established paradigm at this point. And maybe that's why I'm feeling like a little underwhelmed. Like, I'm not, there's not a whole lot of like new juice being pumped into the conversation. And I wonder if we're at the end of something right now. Does any of this make sense? I mean, do you feel like this year's like a little weak or is this... Because again, it, it's different from like a personal thing. There's lots of records that have come out this year that I like. But in terms of like, you know, the consensus records, I don't know. It feels like a little bit of a weak class to me. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this with 
through the prism of Turnstile being a Riot Fest headliner in 2023. Like, I was thinking about this the other day where I would assume they would need, like, another album to get to that point. But, you know, two years after Glow On came up, it is still, like, leveling up in new and exciting ways. And I think the albums that you've mentioned about, like, Caroline Polachek and Boy Genius, the album release itself has felt a little... Anti anticlimactic might not be the word, but they've been, you know, like you were saying, in the kind of ambient, like they, they've been in the ether for so long, just in terms of the artist's presence and the sound. And like a lot of these songs were released like long before uh, the album dropped. And so I think these days when an album comes out, it feels like the end of something rather than the beginning. So I could totally understand how it feels like I don't know, like the just not exciting to say, oh yeah, Caroline Polachek, album of the year, because I feel like we've already just kind of like exhausted that narrative. It feels like when this album dropped, it felt like it was getting an Oscar or an MVP trophy rather than like sparking a new sustained wave of hype. Now, of course, like when the end of the year comes around, I'm sure we'll see plenty of Boy Genius and Caroline Polachek at the, at the top. But I think what you're talking about speaks to like a bigger sort of malaise, um, in I guess our little world about like prognostication um I, I think a we need some new sounds coming here and you know I think maybe that when we look at 2013 that was a real transitional year in ways that we couldn't possibly anticipate at the time so um but when I'm thinking about like um you know the albums like uh, that that we can name is like oh yeah this might have a shot of being album of the year it's like all <laughs> it's like all artists that are familiar you know it's like maybe taylor drops a new album or like big thief come i know their new songs are getting some hype maybe they drop another album uh maybe rihanna's album comes out i mean i think it's hers for the taking but then again like how the fact that we can call it despite the fact she hasn't released any new music really uh, you know, this really stresses how there isn't an exciting middle class of, you know, like, I mean, we, we haven't mentioned Wednesday. Um, right. That seems, that seems to be like the uh, always, um, you know, like number four on every uh, year end list. Uh, it's definitely like the big indie rock record yeah. that's come out so far. And I love that record. You know, I would probably put it at the top of my list or near the top of my list uh, if I were making a mid-year list right now. Um, they're an interesting band because they are in that middle class in a lot of ways. And yet at the same time, you know, like 27 different publications ran interviews with them yeah. this year. You know, like it is. So there is like a PR push behind them that's considerable. Uh, which, you know, again, like I'm I'm not criticizing that because I, I love that record. But, you know, it it is... It does seem harder than ever for an indie record to come out of nowhere mm -hmm. and and really kind of enter the conversation. Um, my hope is that Wednesday might herald an era of bands from like the South or like places that aren't New York or Philadelphia or Los Angeles that break through and have a distinctive regional character. Like that would be a really fun thing to see uh, a return to like what we saw like in the 80s and 90s like with more regional scenes that are distinctive in indie music i would love to see that uh, i don't know if that will happen or not it's too early to tell um but yeah looking ahead uh to like what albums might enter this conversation 
you mentioned Rihanna. Like that feels like the uh, big unknown mm-hmm. as far as like whether that album's going to actually come out. I guess you, you could also put Sky Ferreira in there oh, as well. Yeah, yeah. If that album's going to drop, like those would be two, I think, interesting candidates. Uh, there's a Janelle Monet record that's going to be coming out, and she's been doing like a lot of these like break the internet type stunts Mm. lately to promote that record where she's basically very sexy sort of short videos that she's been posting with ample nudity which is always a good way to get people's attention that seems like that is like her left turn away from the image of like some of her previous records so it seems like kind of a gamble we'll see if it works for her i mean but that could be a big record i feel like janelle monet is a little washed in the eyes of like you know outside of perhaps like Rolling Stone or whatever. It just, it, it, it seems like that she's like very much a, like a 2018 type hype artist. Like it'll be, it'll try, you, you also mentioned Killer Mike. He's got a new album. I think those two, shout to, by the way, shout to the Purple Ribbon All-Star album, Kryptonite, awesome song. They were both on it. I feel like them or those two are a little bit like, uh, marooned in the 2010s as far as being artists that people are like legit excited about i don't know i think they would both be well reviewed oh yeah i could see the, i mean i think you're talking about something different than like critical acclaim i i, I would be i mean unless this janelle, janelle monet album is like a bomb mm. i would expect it to do pretty well critically and it does seem like she is trying to reboot herself uh, with this album cycle. So I that may change as this record comes out. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Killer Mike record, that seems like an automatic 7.8, <laughs> at least. You know, like just, just put it in the bank. Um, there's a King Cruel record oh, coming yeah. out, uh, who that's a guy I do not get at all. <laughs> um, but a lot of critical love. He seems a little niche, maybe. Uh, so maybe not like an album of the year type artist. But um, there's also a new PJ Harvey album coming out in July. I would just give that a best new music right now yeah. without even, you know, I, I, I know that album, again, unless it's awful, that's going to get great reviews. Yeah. That's her first record in seven years. She's a legacy artist. I mean, look, PJ Harvey is great. But I mean, she's totally the kind of veteran artist who is like a guaranteed, you know, top 10, give her at least like number 12 or number eight in every list, (laughs) you know, like, like over under on like an 85 Metacritic score. Like you want to bet the over Mm -hmm. big time with that. So those are some of the albums, but again, you know, there's also a Jenny Lewis record coming out next month, um, which is like, a. I, I think I, I'm going to say it's pretty good right now. I'm, I, I, but like, that's the floor. As I listen to it more, I could easily see it get to very good or even great. Uh, for all the patio music fans out there, Jason Isbell has a new record dropping next month. Not going to be big in the pitchfork corner of the world, but in again, the dad patio corner of the world. That man has a song called cast iron skillet on the new record. It's a great song. Uh, uh, that's the album of the summer for the 45 year old patio dads out there. Uh, so again, a lot of good records on the horizon, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. This is an interesting moment. I, I feel like the, this could potentially be a year like where the albums that are at the top of like critics list, aren't the ones that are remembered 
as the most important records that came out this year. You know, the most important records may have already come out and we're just not aware of them yet. It's going to take time for us to realize how important they are. Um, or maybe not, who knows? But I don't know. I just have a feeling that we're at the end of something and something else is about to begin. I like, we should, yeah, I, I like that idea, indie cast at the end of history. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. So let's talk about one of the great alt-rock bands of all time, The Cure. I wrote about this band this week. I did one of my big list columns, wrote about my 40 favorite Cure songs uh, that just went up as we started recording. So I know you haven't seen it yet, Ian. But I wanted to talk to you about The Cure because... um, well, we're talking about them because they're, they're, they started a huge North American tour this month. It's their first tour in seven years. Are you seeing them this weekend? I am absolutely going to see The Cure. We have bypassed Ticketmaster's no transfer system. I figured out a way. won't share it with you. Just know my name's going to be Carlos this Saturday. Uh, yeah, I'm super stoked Carlos D? Not Carlos is- D, unfortunately. Uh, Carlos A. Um, yeah, I, I'm super stoked for it. There's no opener, uh, so that means I'm probably going to get, like, three hours of Cure. I wouldn't mind being an opener because they took the Twilight... They, like, the Twilight Sad was their kind of, like, kept opening band for a while, and I like Twilight Sad. But, uh, yeah, I have, I'm not looking at any set lists. I am going in there fresh. Really excited for this. Like, more so that, like... You know, obviously all the Swifties are getting, like, their their licks in right now. Like, one of my... I, I know people who, like, flew from California to Philadelphia to see it. My niece went. But for me, I, I am in Swifty mode, except for Robert Smith. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm going to see them next month here in Minneapolis. I'm very excited. Well, I guess they're playing St. Paul, technically. In the Twin <laughs> Cities, I'll be seeing them. Um, I'm, I'm excited. I have looked at set lists and... It's, it is like a three-hour show. I think it's like 29 songs. Uh, it looks like they're playing some new songs from this album that they've been <laughs> working on for like years. Yeah. That is um, apparently about the moon landing, or there's like some sort of moon landing-like theme to it. At least I, I read this in an article from like a few years ago. I don't know. Maybe that's changed since uh, the late 2010s when that article was published. But a lot of hits... They're a band with a lot of hits. I mean, they really don't need an opening act because it's like a three-hour show. So it's going to be amazing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, we should just talk about the legacy of this band for a minute because it's really easy to draw a line from The Cure to, like, so many different foundational music genres that we talk about on the show. I mean, obviously, you got post-punk, you have goth, you have... uh, shoegaze you have dream pop uh you have alternative rock just in general uh but what's fascinating to me about the cure is that their influence and reach is actually much wider than that and really i think what the cure is is like a foundational part of just like youth music in general of like the last 40 years because like beyond the the genres that we just mentioned you know like in the 90s like new metal bands were covering Cure songs in the aughts, like emo bands and and pop punk bands were covering Cure songs. In the 2010s, emo rap stars were sampling Cure songs. You know, there's just like this thing about the Cure where, on one hand, they have an incredibly specific aesthetic, 
where we all know what they sound like, we all know what they look like, we, we all know what the vibe is of this band, and yet within that very kind of specific sensibility, there's all these sort of like broad-reaching implications of their music where like different constituencies can hear something that appeals to them that might not be apparent to somebody else but they take something that they feel belongs to them and they turn it into a different kind of music and i wrote about this in my column but i i think that the secret sauce with the cure is that they have the ability to be hard and soft at the same time like there's something you know, obviously dark and mysterious and gloomy about their image and, and music, but there's also something very poppy and catchy and jangly at the same time. And like, both things are true. You know, it's really up to the listener to decide on what aspect of this band's music speaks to them and that they choose to focus on. It's incredibly unique, you know, because there aren't many other bands that I could name that are as immediately distinctive as them and yet have an influence on such a wide range of artists. So to me, like that is what their legacy is. Yeah. It's, there's pretty much no offshoot of like alternative rock or that, that isn't touched by the cure. You know, you could say something's like cure esque and like mean it, but it's sort of like saying Beatles esque, where like it's it can be true and also like meaningless at the same time because like which part of the cure? Um, and they're just a fascinating band to enter into. I almost feel bad for people who now have the entire discography at their fingertips because um, you know I went through like my cure phase, like a real deal cure phase. I had to cobble it together through like UCD stores. So like one day you might find like staring at the sea, the early singles comp. And then you also might find wish that was in a lot of UCD uh, or wild mood swings. So they would have these incredibly vast stylistic changes and you'd have to kind of all piece it together and discover which one you like the most, which is I think more fun than going straight chronologically. Um, well, well and it, but it, it's funny you say that, like, wild stylistic changes, because I know what you mean, but at the same time, if you take a step back, they're relatively small. Like, even if you go from, like, the post-punk early 80s to, like, that poppy mid-80s period, where, you know, they go from doing uh, Hanging Garden to, like, The Caterpillar, mm-hmm. you know, or The Love Cats, you know, like that, where he where Smith was very deliberately pivoting from that gothy image that they had. Um in a lot of ways, it's not that different, but I know what you mean. Like it feels different. I and I don't know. It's not like the Ramones who like just <laughs> made the same album over and over again, but like I don't know. It's not like they ever did something dramatically different. Like on the whole, I don't know. I just feel like there's such a combination of like a very fixed sensibility that within the world feels broader than it should be in a weird way Mm -hmm. yeah i think that the sensibility is important like i mean it has a very distinct uh central personality so every everything they do whether it's like the eight minute songs on disintegration or like boys don't cry which is a very short and spiky like almost zero reverb song it's like a starter kit for like teenagers 
to announce to the world, yo, I'm sad, but like, how do I want to be sad? Do I want to just be kind of like pastel, kind of twee sad? Do I want to be goth sad? I definitely want to be sad, but like, which kind do I get the pull from? Or like the deep, dark, disintegration style sad. Um, and I think that's like what has allowed them to endure uh, throughout the years, you know, to, you know, like you mentioned, uh, emo, new metal, you know, all the best genres. We have to mention the 2004, the final MTV icon show that they did. They had Blink-182 uh, covering A Letter to Elise, one of their best songs. They also had AFI doing Just Like Heaven, which I did see was your number one song on the list. And Deftones did Only Tonight We Could Sleep. Deftones, excellent taste. Razor Light was there for some reason. So I, I think that's... That sums up where they were at in 2004 when they also made a Ross Robinson produced album. Um, and now you look 20 years later and I would say like their gothy kind of minimal post-punk sound is the one that has the most, um, you know, tangible influence. Uh, but that could change in 10 years, you know. So um, they're just yeah. con- like their reputation is constantly morphing. Yeah, they, there's a lot of tools in, in the toolbox with The Cure. And I think, you know, part of the reason why they've endured as well, and you, you alluded to this, is that there's a Cure costume that you can put on if you are young and you're looking for an identity. Mm-hmm. You know, And that is the most metal aspect, I think, of The Cure. Like, <laughs> in metal, like, like merch is really important. You know, like the band T-shirt is is central to like metal culture, and in the Cure, there's a similar kind of thing. Like where, and I don't know if this still exists or not, but like when I was in school, there was the Cure Kids. You know, that was part of the cast system of like junior high and middle school. You had the kids that dressed like the Cure, and it was similar to like the metal kid kind of thing. And I think that morphed as the nineties went on into like the new metal kid, like the new mm. metal kid and the cure kid, like they dress pretty similarly, you know, like the, <laughs> you've got like the baggy shirt, you've got like the kind of baggy pants. There might be some sort of makeup thing involved. You know, you got the hair that's kind of wild, maybe hanging in your face. You know, I think that, I mean, that's a big part of their aesthetic, the visual part of like what the cure is. Um, which is fascinating, like, when you dig into The Cure's career and you realize that they pivoted to that fairly deep into their catalog. It, it wasn't like Robert Smith was, like, looking like Robert Smith from the beginning. That begins around the time of pornography and, like, really becomes central to their image around the time of The Head on the Door. Like, the videos from that album is, like, when that look becomes codified to this band but there's this whole other period where they're just like a british post-punk band and they were accused early on of like not having an image you know people thought that maybe they were even like a little generic in a way which is such a wild thing yeah to think about the cure at this point yeah look back on but their it, old rolling stone reviews from like the early days they are wild oh my god especially the one for pornography yeah i would just like watch videos of them from like 17 seconds and uh, faith, like 80, 81. And it's like, you know, they don't look, it, well, first of all, they're a three piece at that point. 
Um, but they don't look like the cure. You know, they look like honestly like a lot of bands that you see now coming out <laughs> of England. You know, uh which which as you said, I mean like that era has been really influential uh of late. I mean, and I feel like the cure doesn't always get credit for that. I think like Joy Division often is name checked. Yeah. In that, but um like I remember, you know, this is going back some years, of course, but like when Interpol first came out, Turn on the Bright Lights, um Joy Division was always the reference point with Interpol, but you listen to that record now, and it's way more Cure-like. Yeah, Untitled is definitely disintegration, like stadium opening, and also there was like way more like sexiness to Interpol, which is I think allowed them to endure the way they have. Even though like Joy Division is like I see a lot more Joy Division shirts uh, amongst the youth than uh, than uh, Cure shirts, but I think they've come to be a way to announce like, hey, I'm young, I'm sad, look at me. All right, well, let's get into our categories here to talk about The Cure. Favorite album. Now, I feel like there are two albums that are in the running for this. I mean, maybe three if you are a proponent of the early period, like pornography. I feel like it would come up if you love that era of The Cure. But I think for most people, it comes down to the two albums at the end of the 80s, Disintegration and Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Where do you land on that? So, Disintegration, like, is one one of my, like, probably my favorite album. Not my favorite album of all time, but definitely my favorite of the 80s. Um, so, like, I don't listen to it as often as I do. Uh, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Uh, I think of it as, like, would you rather watch The Godfather or The Sopranos? And, of course, you know, Disintegration's the, the more cinematic one. Whereas with uh, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, it's more episodic. And there are some weak songs, you know, towards the end. Um, but I love them both. But as far as the one that is really life-changing, I would say that's Disintegration. I just love the fact that when you, ha- if you get the CD, it says on the back of the credits, turn it up loud. It says that explicitly. And you really have to to just get all the depths of it. Um but I think Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is like more of the Cure starter kit one. Like this is how you learn to be a Cure fan uh, in their many modes. So e- you can't go wrong with either one of those. But if I have to like put a flag in the ground and say like, hey, this is the one I re- like that has moved me the most and has been most important, then absolutely that's Disintegration. But uh, Kiss Me is more like a 1B than a strict number two. Yeah, I'm going to go the other way, and I have a similar thing. I would put Disintegration 1B for me. I mean, that's a, a great record, unquestionably one of the great albums of the of the 80s. I love that it's a total CD album. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the best <laughs> CD albums of all time. Not and, yeah, Because Robert Smith, he conceived it as like a 72-minute 72 72 piece of music. Like, he thought about the CD format when he made that record. So, like... If you're out there buying Disintegration on vinyl, I'm sorry. You got to go on eBay. You got to get a used copy of Disintegration on CD. Get like a cheap CD boombox and play it in your room with the lights out. That's the right way to listen to Disintegration. Probably put on some headphones so you can just turn it up all the way and really feel that record take over your life. Um, But yeah, I'm going to go with Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me number one. And the case I would make is actually rooted in a lot of the criticisms of this record you know this record gets criticized for uh you know being a little long you know it's a double record it's a little scattered it's a little inconsistent um 
But I don't know. To me, it belongs in the great tradition of like double albums in rock history. And I think it is in a way the midpoint between like the great double albums of the 70s, you know, Exile on Main Street, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, The Wall, which by the way, Kiss Me Kiss Me was recorded at the same studio that The Wall was made oh. at. So, and also in the south of France, just like Exile on Main Street. So it has that kind of classic rock pedigree to it. But to me, it points to the great double albums of the 90s. Like I listened to Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, and I think of Melancholy in the Infinite Sadness. I think about The Fragile, you know. I, I guess I think about White Pony. I know it's 2000, but because Deftones covered uh, What If Tonight We Could Sleep. So it just feels like it's in the middle of the classic rock part of the double album spectrum and like the alt rock part of the spectrum. So that's why I lean toward that. But obviously you can't go wrong with either record. Um what is an overrated Cure record? Is there an overrated Cure record? I absolutely think there is. Um, and you know, as much as I joke about like how much Rolling Stone slagged pornography in its time, I do think that album has it's it was so underrated for so long that it's kind of overrated now. Like I understand the importance of it because it is the Cure's most demanding album. It is the one that. Like it, it, it's kind of a contrarian choice because it is so far removed from like where they would go immediately after. Um, but you know, a hundred years, one of their best opening songs. That's on fucking rules. Um, but afterwards, it gets kind of. Uh, it feels like a bit of a drag, and I know that's the point. But it still doesn't quite feel as immersive as it's played out to be. You know, even though that era of the Cure, like the the kind of spooky post-punk of like faith and 17 seconds. I think that's like their most contemporarily influential stuff. It's not the, I feel like with that whole era, uh, staring at the sea kind of does the job. Um, and you know, there's interesting deep cuts on it, but yeah, I, I'd say like pornography, like I like it. It wouldn't be at the bottom of my like cure albums ranking list, but uh, I, I don't see it as the masterpiece it's made out to be. But I also feel like I were growing up in the 80s, that would be much different. Yeah, you know, I don't, I wouldn't call it overrated, really. I mean, I think the thing with pornography is the mythology of that record, mm -hmm. you know, because that's the album where, you know, they were literally recording in toilets <laughs> that were filthy in order to get like a grimy, booming, sound that you hear on that album and they were also just doing loads of cocaine <laughs> like I, I i was reading um when i was doing my piece i was reading uh the book never enough by jeff apter which is a pretty good biography of the band and uh it talks about how they had a cocaine budget for that album that was 1600 pounds like not 1600 pounds of cocaine not 1600 pounds of cocaine but 1600 pounds money to pay for cocaine it seems like a lot yeah uh the fact that you're budgeting for cocaine i think speaks to the decadence of that record uh, like to me i would argue that like having a budget seems like anti-decadent <laughs> like the whole point about like cocaine is like that it's like unlimited but you know i guess that's why the cure has made it as long as they well have. i i mean i don't know that that is uh that that seems like a, a, a distinction that uh, doesn't really wash for me. I mean, I, I, to me, like, that's the decadent Cure album. And when I listen to it, like, I don't really hear it as a depressing album. I hear it as, like, their drug album or, like, their party album in a weird kind of way. Like, I was, 
when I was uh, working on the story and having some drinks on a recent Friday night, I was listening to pornography and people were like, are you okay? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like listening to this very druggy album. It's pretty fun. Um, the only sense I would say that record's maybe overrated is that out of that trilogy of goth records from the early 80s, like my favorite is is Faith. I think Faith gets a little overshadowed by pornography uh, because it doesn't have the same sort of maximalist decadence that pornography has. But um, I don't know, Faith, it's such a chilly and austere record. It's basically, in my mind, Robert Smith trying to make his version of Closer, like the last mm. Joy Division record. It has that kind of vibe to it. And um, I got to shout out the song Primary, uh, which is one of my favorite Cure songs. Two bass parts on that song. Oh, yeah. Robert Smith and Simon Gallup, both playing bass. Rhythm and lead bass. Pretty unique for a song. Um, and The Cure is like one of the great baseline bands of all time. Like as far as alt-rock goes, it's The Cure and New Order. Like they have to battle it out for like who has the best bass lines. So yeah, I, I would really go to bat for Faith out of that trilogy of of, of like their dark early period. Um, what about underrated Cure albums? Well, I... I... <laughs> I think that this one is so poorly rated that like saying I even like it means it's like underrated. I got to go with the top. Like this is one of the great UCD finds of that time because it's right between uh, Head on the Door, which they, you know, put them in a space where they could make these big stadium status type records and their early dark phase. This to me is like the drug album, but like, Whereas there's like a romance to the kind of drug use on pornography. This is like more Robert Smith just gone off his fucking gourd. Like feel good hit of the summer uh, drug regimen. Um, there's like some actual great songs on here. Like uh, Shake Talk Shake is kind of their version of Pour Some Sugar on Me. Uh, Dressing Up is a I th- Dressing Up great song. It really comes alive on the Paris live album. Um there's also uh, like the Wailing Wall and uh, the Unknown Soul, not the Unknown Soldier. Sorry, um, <laughs> the that's, doors, that's the man. Doors, but it's kind of similar where it's got like the field snare, the military field snare, just like these yeah. bizarre experiments. And of course, we got to give a shout out to Banana Fishbones, which I think oh that you were like on the verge of putting on the list. One of the yeah. be- one of the best. Like this is the most filler of filler songs. Just a bonkers song. Uh, easily the ugliest album cover in The Cure's history, I would say. Uh, More so than the self-titled? The self-titled one, oh, that's pretty ugly too, actually. <laughs> and I mean, the Three Imaginary Boys cover is just, like, stupid. But, yeah. like, the top cover's pretty ugly. Um, in terms of underrated, I'm going to say Wish. Even though I know that album is, is pretty acclaimed and people look at it as it being the end of like their golden era, I feel like Wish is, it gets a lot of backhanded compliments when people talk about it. It's basically looked at as just a retread mm. of disintegration, um, which in a sense is kind of true. But the thing with Wish is that like if I were going to introduce someone to The Cure... I think I would play them Wish first because I think it's the record that you really don't need to know anything about The Cure to appreciate it. Like, you don't need to know about their history or their mythology or their aesthetic or anything. It just sounds like 
like a slightly weird U2 album uh. from the 90s. You know, it's a very kind of stadium sounding record very muscular but there's so many hits on that on that album um in a way like as much as i love disintegration like i I listen to wish more i mean you have open you have high you have obviously friday i'm in love uh you have uh doing the unstuck you have a letter to elise one of the greatest cure songs of all time um i really feel like that record is just below the top two like the gap between Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, and Disintegration, and Wish, I really think is like a lot narrower than people give it credit for. So that, in that sense, I think that record's a little underrated. Oh, I agree. I think that it, it, it is a bit dated, the production. Like, it's very 1992. Um, but the addition to the songs that you mentioned, I mean, From the Edge of the Deep Green Sea is oh sort God. of like the... To me, it's like the it's like the midpoint between uh, "Kiss Me" and "Disintegration," and that it's got you know "Friday I'm in Love," which you know I should hate because it's like a very um, it's a very out of character not out of character, but it's like a song that you could like and not have to explore any other songs from the Cure. But great song, and I think it ver- fits very well within the Cure mythology. Open, incredible song, like high, one of their best pop songs. Um, you know, cut. Uh, and I mean, the, oh yeah, the the last song, yeah, end is a, one of the great album closers in Cure history. Yeah. And if they ended things right there, I mean, I don't know what, like, how the next you know twenty years would go. But um, yeah, I think it is on the level. Not it doesn't have the same sort of mythos as you know their eighties work. But I mean, for it, it is still just a great album. It's better every time I hear it. Also. I know you you mentioned like emo bands covering uh, the Cure. The Hotel Year did a version of Doing the Unstuck um, back in like 2014 or whatever. I also got like I want to give a little shout out to Blood Flowers. That album was like huge for me in college um, because I was like sort of living like Robert Smith during pornography, not with the cocaine. You know, like let's just be very clear about that. I could not afford six. I didn't have sixteen thousand pounds. Uh, but it's a very, it's like a, it's, it's very much a comfort food cure album that they've been trying to make for like the past 20 years and haven't pulled off. So I have, I have like some very, very, um, you know, like, uh, a completely subjective love for that record, even though I know it's like fan service. I almost put it in the underrated category, but we have this other last category, low key favorite. And I put blood flowers in that one. And I agree. I mean, it's a record where if you're expecting the cure to like push their sound forward, you're going to be disappointed. But if you just want Robert Smith to pay homage to himself, <laughs> which is what he's doing essentially on that album, uh, it's great. And I feel like so many people have ripped off the cure. Like, why can't Robert Smith rip off the cure? He does it better than anyone. And that record really proves it. So it's a very pleasurable record. It's easily my favorite thing that they've done post wish um why can't i be you why can't i be me you know (laughs) yeah absolutely did you have anything else to add for the low-key favorite category absolutely so um you're talking about like the post wish cure which has been like really uh it's been pretty dire but the opening i wouldn't say dire i I don't think they've made like a bad record it's just that like the thing with wish is that i think they basically accomplished all that there was left to accomplish creatively. And now it's just about reiterating 
even Wish was kind of reiterating what Disintegration did. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just not... It's good on its own, but it's just not going to like blow your your mind. I mean, there's already so many other Cure albums from earlier in their career. That these, the, I would say that the albums don't feel essential, or they feel a little unnecessary. Mm-hmm. To me, but they're not bad. Yeah. Okay. Think. Yeah. Dire. Dire was a bit, a uh, bit of an overstatement. I guess I'm just more disappointed that like the self-titled album, the one they did at kind of the peak of their alt rock emo new metal uh, acclaim, did it like had one good song. Uh, the first one lost. Oh, what a great fucking song that is. But I was just like, uh, then they started making songs about like terrorism and whatever. Um, I. Similarly, Want, the first song from Wild Mood Swings, which I think everyone will acknowledge is easily the worst Cure album. Uh, that song's really fucking good. And also, I got to give a shout to Mixed Up. Maybe the, I don't know if it's the best indie remix album of all time, but uh, I remember someone in college and a woman who was like one year older than me said it was like the best makeout album she ever heard. And that stuff sticks with you uh, when you hear it in college. So those and also the uh, Join the Dots B-side collection which I bought for like 70 bucks in uh, 2004. Harold and Joe, um, this Twilight Garden. I mean, there, there's there's some keepers in there. And also the song they did for Judge Dredd, the movie. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Bird from the Crow that. soundtrack. Oh, I'm, I'm like actually mad that you didn't put that song on the list now that I think about it. Yeah, someone else mentioned that to me. Oh, that's that. That's a really good song. I, you know, I like. Um, I feel like you could find this uh, on YouTube, like the Cure in Orange, like that live film uh, that uh, was filmed. I think right before Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. It would have been like when they were touring behind the head on the door and staring at the beach, and it's like Robert Smith with like really short hair, huh. just kind of like an interesting look. That's a cool movie, and show from like the early 90s that like live oh yeah i think is really good uh because i mean the cure is a great live band too i mean that's another thing about them is that you know even as they faded creatively they do remain a band that you want to see because like they deliver live uh so i'm definitely excited to see them next month and i'm you will have to report next week about your cure experience uh excited to hear about that um let's get to our mailbag segment and uh, thank you all for writing in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, you can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, Ian, do uh, you want to read this letter? Oh, I absolutely do. Uh, this is one of my favorites. Uh, so uh, first off, love the pod. Makes my Friday morning cup of coffee the best cup of coffee in my week. I'm currently online wow. dating, and I recently met someone who is really into the hold steady. I mean, we've been waiting for this mailbag all our lives. Despite being a life or indie listener, the Hold Steady is a huge blind spot for me. For whatever reason, I never dug into the discography, and now I'm catching up on them and really enjoyed a deep dive into their catalog. My question, have you ever been the recipient of a band from a relationship, either turned onto a band you did not know or studied up on a band that you hadn't paid much attention to? And if so, did the success of the relationship affect your relationship with the band? This is from Melanie in Sacramento. Wow, this is a great letter. Thank you, Melanie, for writing in. Um, I mean, I already mentioned Ani DeFranco as being someone that I was exposed to uh, because of at least one woman I dated in the 90s. Um, so that's an example. I, I would say that the most successful you know, instance of me being turned onto a band because of someone I was dating 
is going to surprise people because I feel like this band is such a middle-aged guy band, or at least that's how they're perceived. But in my experience, I dated two women, two different women, uh, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was in my early, early 20s, who were really into Steely Dan. And I credit them with turning me into a Steely Dan fan. Actually, there was one, the second woman I dated, because I was also online dating at the time, she said that she was looking for a Donald Fagan type. <laughs> and I don't what know if I mean? am a Donald Fagan. <laughs> well, you know, if you listen, you know, I don't know, funny, cynical, uh, into jazz. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'm a Donald Fagan type, but the fact that she was looking for a Donald Fagan type made her instantly attractive to me. So that was something, you know, just dating her. I was already starting to be a Steely Dan fan because of like the first woman I dated who was a Steely Dan fan, but like dating the second Steely Dan fan girlfriend really got me into the band. So yeah, Steely Dan for me, I think, is the most successful instance. And I broke up with these people, and I still love Steely Dan. So I appreciate that exposure uh, from those two ladies. Yeah, I, 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 if Craig Finn's listening to this uh, podcast, and I hope he does, you know, we talk about his band a lot. I feel like he's going to write a song about Melanie. This is like the follow-up to You Can Make Him Like You or whatever. Like the woman who gets into hold steady to, uh, to you know, to kind of make herself uh, more attractive in the dating game. But, um, you know, for me, like, I'm ch- there were definitely times where I was, you know, a little more lenient on certain genres. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like when I lived in Virginia and Georgia, I'm like, yeah, I listen to a Brooks and Dunn album. But um, I think by and large, like I'm kind of past the point where music holds as much impact in terms of like, the way I perceive compatibility, because I think we all go through like the high fidelity phase where it feels like the single most important thing that determines whether or not you're going to have a good relationship. And, um, but nowadays, like I think that instead of being introduced to new bands, I hear the same bands through a different lens. Um, you know, for example, my wife, you know, she, in the two thousands, like she listened to the same indie stuff as I did, but was more through like the evangelical church. So like obviously bands uh, with religious undertones like Sufjan and Arcade Fire uh, could be seen differently, like how important they were to people who had faith. And also like the emo stuff, like Pedro the Lion or Me Without You. Um, she, she, It's been kind of a cheat code for me to understand like modern emo when you get a sense of like what Hillsong is and what like Cornerstone Festival are. Um, in terms of seeing like the devotion of the people who are fans of this music, but also the sound of it. Um, so that's been super helpful as well. But I also think that more important, the more, the more important component of like a relationship now is not that like introduction to new music, but like having a, uh, (laughs) sort of non music writer, Twitter baseline to view things through. Um, you know, like I think that when, people are like going off about like Taylor Swift or boy genius. Um, it helps to have someone there who can say, yeah, it's fine. I don't get it. And it's like, Oh, this is a very normal person opinion, but it seems like almost avant-garde. If like you take a step back from the maelstrom of music, Twitter. Yeah. I have to say never date someone because they have good music taste. I'm going to say this as 
you know, a wise elder here to like our younger <laughs> listeners. It is maybe the least important thing when you're looking for a mate. Because, yeah, I went through my period where I was like, oh, this person has cool taste. So I want to date them. And then you find out, yeah, they have great music taste, but they're also a lunatic <laughs> and a bad person. And maybe the lunatic and bad person part is more important than the good music taste part. So this this is an episode of Dating Cast here. Yeah. I'm just going to drop a brief Dating Cast episode. Music taste does not matter when you're looking for a mate. We now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so the name of the band is Mandy, Indiana, and you'll be shocked to know that this is actually isn't an emo act. Um, their new album, I've Seen Away, uh, is out this uh, today, and they've been on my radar since 2021. Um, you know, they're from Manchester, and were described as like a UK post-punk band, which usually just I completely do not give a shit about, but... Um, there, the song I heard, like, A, it actually banged and like B, it did so in a way that reminded me of early These New Puritans, definitely an IndieCast Hall of Fame band. If we uh, do another episode, both, uh, you know, for, uh, Field of Reeds and Hidden, um, this new one just does that and it does it on an album length. It reminds me a little bit of a companion piece to the Model Actress album that we talked about, uh, earlier this year possibly early liars influence coming into the realm of indie music, um, which I appreciate because as much as everyone's talking about like the return of indie sleaze or whatever, uh, that's a very narrow definition. And I like to think of, you know, like early liars is that kind of like bad drugs, bad vibes sort of indie sleaze as opposed to, you know, uh, going to an LCD sound system show. Also, uh, the singer is a woman who sings mostly in French, so that puts an interesting dynamic to it. This is not music where I need to pay attention to the lyrics. So, uh, very rare, uh, you know, kind of hyped indie rock album that sounds good at the gym without being hardcore. Really uh, threads that needle for me. So I'm going to sneak two albums into my recommendation corner uh, this week. The first one came out earlier this month. It's called an In In Belt Fault, a very awkwardly named title, but it's very good. It's by a British singer-songwriter named Westerman, who you may have heard about. He's been uh, sort of floating around for the past several years, and he's really perfected this sort of like soft rock sound. Like the way I've described this album is if Sting made a Bonnie Bear record, which I know for a segment of our listeners will be the last thing they want to hear. But if you're (laughs) on that wavelength, this record is really great, I think, and it's my favorite thing that Westerman has done. So I wanted to bring that up on the show. The other album I want to recommend this week is out today. It's called Tracy Denim, and it's by a London band called Bar Italia. And this is a band that can be broadly classified as as, as post-punk. But I need to say that, you know, we've talked about a lot of these British bands in the last few years that have come out that are post-punk. And they all, they all tend to be, like, kind of guttural. A lot of talk singing, a lot of abrasive guitars, kind of, like, consciously difficult music. But there is like another side of post-punk that frankly comes from bands like The Cure, which is sleeker and sexier with like really cool bass lines. And it has more of like a mysterious vibe to it. And this band falls under that. Uh, I think The Cure is a reference point for this group. I would say like 
early aughts Radiohead. There's some elements of there, that art rock kind of phase for the band. There's a great band from Baltimore called Lower Dens. I don't know if people remember Lower Dens, but I was listening to this uh, record by Baratalia, and it made me think about Lower Dens as well. So, again, if you're looking for, like, not the sort of guttural, like, barking type of post-punk, but the more sort of, like, again, like, enigmatic, really cool bass tones type post-punk, this is going to be a record for you. I, I really like it a lot. I've been listening to it all week, so definitely check it out. Shout out to the guy, Carlos, who gave me the Cure tickets. He's a big Lower Dens fan, too. Okay, Lower Dens. Really good band. Check out Lower Dens if you haven't. Really good band. Um, we have reached the end of this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.